Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shri and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Toyin Ajayi. Dr. Ajayi is Chief Health Officer and one of the co-founders of CityBlock Health, which is a New York-based health and social services company that serves low-income Medicaid populations. She's also a board-certified family physician and continues to practice primary care and hospital medicine with a focus on patients with chronic, complex, and end-of-life needs. So Dr. Ajayi, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. So can you start by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what led to your interest in healthcare and then family medicine? Sure. I grew up in East Africa, in Kenya, and experienced very early on the massive disparities in health outcomes and social outcomes um, based on income, based on uh, a whole host of kind of externalities around me. I grew up at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic and saw firsthand from the very beginning just the impact that health and social policy can have on people's outcomes. And so for my entire sort of childhood was really seeped in the notion of social justice and the the idea of service. And for me, medicine was a really natural extension of my interest in science, my interest in research um, and evidence, as well as the real desire to have a tangible impact on people around me. I found my way to family medicine as a way to really gain as broad a skill set as I could have and be able to focus in on a lot of the things that I've find that I continue to love about practicing medicine, um, sitting with people, meeting with them, meeting them where they are, understanding what they need, and helping to build trusted relationships. That's great. I actually didn't know about the East Africa connection. I actually was born in Namibia and lived in South Africa. And uh, that's where I got my own interest in in healthcare. Just uh, my dad is a general physician and following him at the hospital he used to help supervise is what got me interested in pursuing a career in healthcare. So, you know, it's one thing to become a physician and practice as you do. It's another thing to start one of the most innovative healthcare companies out there, CityBlock. So can you tell us a bit about your role in co-founding CityBlock and where the idea came from? Sure. You know, in retrospect, I think I certainly never intended to become an entrepreneur, um, but I've always been a fixer. I've always liked to build systems and solve problems and I sort of have a bias to action and to try to figure out what the root cause of an issue is and just sort of to dive in and and fix it. And I like to learn new things by doing them. And so over the course of my kind of adult life, I built things, um, organizations, campaigns during the HIV epidemic, a nonprofit in Sierra Leone, which I helped to co-lead and run um, prior to coming back to the U.S. for residency. Um, Didn't know that there was a thing that allowed you to do that in healthcare, but found myself practicing. did my residency in Boston at Community Health Center, um, found myself practicing as a hospitalist, and started to bump up against the ways in which the system was broken. To my perspective, it was there were so many structural issues that prevented me from providing the type of care that I wanted to provide to the patients that I love to care for, the folks with the most complex needs, people struggling with mental health challenges and addiction and social issues, um, people approaching end of life who had deep, deep, deep seated mistrust from the healthcare system and such a gap in the services that they needed. And I found myself with kind of two choices, like I was either to practice in a community health center, serving the population I wanted to serve, but doing it in a way that just felt so alien to my core values in, you know, a series of 10 minute office visits without the types of resources that I needed, without the real space to meet people 
really where they were and build those trusted relationships over time or in the hospital. And I was working as a hospitalist as well, where again, I was, I was getting to spend time with people and really, really to kind of have the type of impact often at, at end of life on the types of courses of disease that I really wanted to touch. But I was seeing people come in and out over and over and over again for things I knew we could do differently by. And I think what, um, what sort of led me almost inadvertently down the road of entrepreneurship was that I felt myself becoming more alienated from the work I was doing. I felt a widening chasm between my values and the things that filled me up and the things that, that had driven me to medicine and the day-to-day -day work and the things that I needed to do to be successful. So I was becoming a really good doctor by the standards of, I could see lots of patients, I could write my notes, I could you know move my way through EHR as quickly as possible, but I was much less fulfilled. And, and it felt like something was broken. I was less in touch with my patients and with myself. And where I think, you know, a lot of my colleagues I see in practice often tend to sort of think it's them. Um, they work harder or they cut back their hours or they call it burnout or what have you. I, I for some reason, just knew in my gut that the system was broken. It wasn't me. I was a really good, smart person working my tail off and I wasn't making an impact for my patients. And I was sure that it wasn't me. It was the system was broken. And that led me down a journey of starting to learn how we got the healthcare system that we have follow the dollars, try to understand how we pay for healthcare and therefore how we get the outcomes that I was seeing, starting to understand the interplay between those root causes, structural factors in our society, in our community, how we fund social services, how we perpetuate racist policies, how does that show up in the outcomes that I was seeing? And then started to ask how I could chip away at some of those things over time. And that led me to value-based care, first through a health plan, Commonwealth Carolines in Massachusetts, where I finally got to think about a holistic investment in changing outcomes for a population of folks. And then over time, it led me to think about what it would look like to do this at national scale at CityBlock. And that was sort of the origin of our vision for CityBlock. I know there's a lot of innovation around primary care, Medicare Advantage plans and whatnot. One thing that differentiates CityBlock is that you primarily serve, I mean, you work to serve low-income Medicaid populations. Can you tell us a bit about some of the innovations that you all have pushed forward at CityBlock and what makes the model work the way it does? Yeah, absolutely. Medicaid is such an important program in providing access to health insurance and health benefits for people who are lower income across the country and has long been an area that really is ripe for disruption and for innovation um, in terms of being able to have an impact on the health and the health outcomes of, of millions of people who are struggling not only with, with medical needs, but also with the sequelae of poverty. And so we knew from the outset that just from a mission and a values perspective that Medicaid was going to be such an important part of, of the business that we sought to build. Um, and from my experiences as a clinician and as an operational leader in organizations that served primarily a similar population, including folks who are dually eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, there were a couple of core features that I knew that we needed to build from the outset. The first is a recognition that behavioral health needs pervade throughout that population, pervades throughout our population in general, um, but there are significant, significant access issues and supply issues around behavioral health services in those communities in particular that had, in many instances, the greatest needs. And so we built our care model um, with full integration of behavioral health with physical health as a core central tenet. And that included ensuring point of service, no wrong door care for people with 
serious mental illness, folks who are struggling with addiction, as well as for people who are struggling with the sequelae of trauma. And when you think about what it feels like to have grown up in some of the most impoverished communities in our country, having lack of access to uh, a whole host of even basic social services, having experienced significant childhood trauma and social disruption, those challenges pervade throughout your life. And the healthcare system can either perpetuate trauma, which it very frequently does for these patients by treating people disrespectfully, by being inaccessible, by being patriarchal and disrespectful, by being untrustworthy and not following up. Or we can actually provide care that is respectful, that's trust-based, that's relationship-based, that seeks to affirm um, the autonomy of the people we're, we're serving and partnering with, and also seeks to understand where they're coming from. And so that was a really, that is a really core component of our model. It pervades how we resource our care teams, it pervades the types of programs we focus on, and it's directly manifested in our ability to engage the population that we're serving and to, to work with them to incent behavior change one piece. The second piece that we, that we really innovated around in order to serve a Medicaid population is on the data and technology side, particularly around analytics. What you'll know, I'm sure, and your, and your listeners will know is that there's a proliferation of technology tools and data and analytic tools aiming to create insights into population health, specifically targeted in particular at populations that have a significant burden of physical health needs, um, chronic conditions, um, medication issues, where the signal and the tooling sits on top of data that's readily available in healthcare. So a lot of these technologies and a lot of these data analytics platforms basically draw from data that's available in the electronic medical record, data that's available through um, healthcare claims, data that's available from pharmacy records, and use that to try to generate a sense of who's high risk and who's not high risk, who's likely to go to the hospital, who needs a certain type of case management intervention and who doesn't. But what we know in the Medicaid population in particular is that there's a whole host of other factors that drive risk in Medicaid that aren't visible in structured data and typical structured data sources. You know, whether a person has a place to sleep at night is a far more important predictor of whether they're going to end up in the hospital than their medications on their medication list. Whether a person has strong and longitudinal and trusted relationships with family members or with a healthcare provider, that is a massive, massive predictor of whether or not they're going to be stable through a readmission, a risk period, or whether they'll come right back into the hospital. And most of the tools out in the market lack that kind of data and lack those kinds of insights that are really targeted towards understanding the full 360-degree view of of a patient and of their community and of their risk factors. And so we sought to build um, custom technology tools that really, really take into account the full view of a member and an individual patient's experience through a combination of the typical health data sources, as well as a significant investment in, in pulling in behavioral health data. And then finally, in creating a trust-based framework that allows people to share their social data with us. Because factors like, do you have enough food to eat? Those are really hard questions to ask a person if they don't trust you. Um, they're really hard questions to infer the answers to without actually getting proximate to the patients that you're serving. And so we sought out to actually gather that data from our members and use it to inform an engine, an analytical engine that helps us better predict impact and impactability of individual members at various points across their journey so that we can target our clinical teams and our interventions effectively to improving their outcomes. And then finally, we think about um, the importance of omni-channel access, anytime, anyplace, anywhere, really meeting people where they are, because we recognize that the traditional healthcare model 
relies very heavily on bricks and mortar. Even some of the most innovative practices that are focused on Medicare Advantage, a big part of their model is getting people to the clinic in order to access care from doctors and nurses and others on the care team. And we recognize that particularly for folks in the Medicaid population, they may not have access to transportation or the ability to take time off from work in the middle of the day to come to a doctor's office appointment or childcare to cover them when they come in, or frankly, the desire to prioritize, uh, you know, one hour or two hour trip to the doctor's office over all of the other things that they're solving for in their social lives. And so it became even more important to make sure that our clinical model was truly able to meet people wherever they were. And so our, the, the majority of our care is community-based. It's in people's homes. It's meeting them in the Dunkin' Donuts. It's accompanying them to other appointments. We use um, asynchronous communication via text messaging, our app, inbound phone calls, outbound phone calls, emails, every way that we can to get connected and stay connected with people and to make sure that they know that they can access this at any time that they want and need. And that extends all the way through to being able to provide high intensity clinical services in people's homes. We do a tremendous amount of clinical home visiting, as well as bringing people into the clinic when they choose to come. And they may choose to come for a whole host of reasons other than just clinical care, really creating that community-based setting. That sounds very comprehensive. And clearly, you guys have thought through all the issues, trust-based care, value-based care. I'd love to hear, like, what is the size and scope right now of CityBlock? And do you have any uh, results that you'd be able to share as to how the model is working? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been uh, in operation for about three years. We launched our first market in Brooklyn, New York, actually where I live, in the summer of uh, 2018. And we are now live in four markets. Um, So we have practices and we have members that we serve in New York, in Connecticut, in Massachusetts, um, and in in Washington, D.C. We serve tens of thousands of members across all of those populations focused on folks with complex and chronic needs in the physical health, the behavioral health, and the social space. Um, And we're starting to see outcomes. We're starting to see that our first cohorts of members are demonstrating significant reductions in acute hospitalizations since their engagement with CityBlock. Um, We're starting to see reductions in total cost of care. We have a net promoter score, which is our measure for for patient satisfaction that is in the 90s, um, which is really uh, quite a tremendous feat in healthcare. And we're we're reaching engagement rates, orders of magnitude greater than has typically been thought to be possible in these types of populations. So we're able to find people, connect with them, build trust with them, understand what's going on for them, and then drive interventions that improve their overall health and well-being and reduce their hospitalizations, in particular ambulatory care sensitive and patient admissions. So the types of hospitalizations that could be averted by effective and comprehensive community-based care. Well, that's fantastic traction and progress so far. I'd love to hear, you know, obviously you've scaled quite a bit in three years, four different markets, many covered lives. COVID has thrown a curveball in many uh, areas of healthcare and many areas of life. And also the um, issues that have been exposed around racial injustice, which have been there, but clearly this year has been a banner year for awareness around it. I'd love to hear how both crises or both issues have affected your operations at CityBlock and and what do you think some of the lasting changes from both maybe for CityBlock and healthcare in general? It's so fresh and hard to prognosticate, I think, although there are some things that I think are obvious that we can start to point to. COVID-19, 
we're still, I think, still grappling with the fallout and the consequences of COVID, um, particularly in communities like the communities we serve, folks with complex needs, folks living in, um, in lower income communities, communities of color. We knew very early on as the pandemic started to roll through the United States that our members would be amongst the most vulnerable. And so we worked incredibly hard to identify who of all of our members are at the highest risk to make sure that we outreach to them, to make sure that we were asking very specific and targeted questions around how we could help keep them safe and their families safe during this period, um, and to make sure that they had all the resources that they needed. Uh, you know, 90-day supply of prescriptions. Is there enough food? Do you have emergency contact information? Do you have PPE? Do you know what the signs and symptoms are of COVID to, to watch out for? And we did, we did, you know, a tremendous amount of work just, just covering and reaching out to our members. Um, you know, where we are fortunate is because of our structure, our value-based care model, um, a structure that makes sure that we receive funding from the health plan partners that we contract with to maintain support and care delivery to our members, irrespective of modality, meant that we were able very quickly to, to pivot even further towards virtual care and to ensure that we were not only maintaining, but actually increasing our engagement with our, with our members. Um, and also that we were able to spin up very novel and innovative ways of reaching people and meeting their needs. And so for us, um, what that meant during COVID was that we were seeing our members more frequently than we had done before. We were seeing people using video visits and, and of course, with our, with our regular other asynchronous telehealth modalities, that we were also seeing people in their homes deploying highly trained, highly responsive clinical teams of paramedics and nurses and doctors and nurse practitioners into people's homes in full PPE to provide the kind of clinical evaluation and treatment that, that folks needed, that we were providing rapid initiation of substance use disorder treatment if needed, that we were doing all of the things of our model in whatever domain, whatever, whatever modalities we needed to in order to, to meet their needs. And we were also partnering in, in innovative ways with community-based organizations to make sure that, that our members with social needs were well cared for, including creating a program to help put people in hotels um, uh, if they were unable to socially isolate um, or they needed a place to recuperate with COVID symptoms and they had no home. And I think what this has told us for the healthcare system as a whole that I do hope will be a lasting sequela of COVID is that value-based care models are more resilient at times like this when a pandemic means that our traditional model of care delivery, which is dependent on people leaving their homes, perhaps getting on public transportation, coming to a doctor's office, sitting in a waiting room with a whole bunch of other humans in order to receive care, that, that is not the most resilient way to resource a healthcare system because what it's meant for so many other primary care providers is that they've struggled to keep their doors open and they're struggling with liquidity issues and they're struggling to just maintain their clinical service availability and access because the fee-for-service model of care was not responsive, was too brittle to respond to the needs of the community at a time like this. So that I think will be lasting for us and for, for many others in this space. Um, how does this relate to this sort of newfound heightened recognition of structural racism and its effects and impacts in driving massive disparities in health outcomes, um, particularly for communities of color? I think that COVID was just yet another example and another illustration of how much work our society as a whole has yet to do to reckon with the history of racism and the legacy of racial injustice 
It happened at a moment in time where we couldn't take our eyes off of it. It happened in a moment in time that happened to just coalesce with yet another murder of an unarmed Black person. Um, and for once, it felt like and has, is feeling like we have a moment of national attention on this crisis and starting to see, we hope, some real movement to addressing this. What does this mean for us? Um, you know, as a company that is rooted in community care, that is rooted in caring for communities with complex needs, communities that are in every single way you look at it, struggling with the sequelae of injustice and disparities, it means a continuation of the work we've been doing. It means continuing to pour fuel on the fire that we have had as a company about making sure that we are an anti-racist company, um, building policies and processes language, norms, ways of being that interrogate our biases from top to bottom, that make sure that we are creating an inclusive environment for our team members, that our team members feel empowered, feel supported, feel included, feel heard, and feel able to treat our members, the members and patients that we serve with the same dignity, the same inclusion, and the same respect that they themselves are receiving um, within the company. I do believe that, you know, your insides reflect your outsides. And so ensuring that we focused on company culture, even at a time when we're all remote, because it is so critical, our people are our greatest asset. Um, they're the folks who do the work on our behalf with our members who need this work so desperately. And then we've been really public about making commitments and affirmations and making sure that our voice is heard in an advocacy space as we do whatever we can to advocate on behalf of our members, um, many of whom are suffering and living through the exact same injustices and barriers that we have seen play out on the national stage. That's fascinating. It's super comprehensive. And, and one thing that, that clearly resonates is that long-term value-based medicine is going to be really important to deal with potential future pandemics or shocks to the system. And then also, how are we recruiting, training, empowering our healthcare professionals and staff? Because there's a lot of people behind the scenes who are contributing to the $4 trillion healthcare industry, who we have to figure out how to train in ways that make them capable of not only providing value-based medicine, but community-based, trust-based, as, as you mentioned. Um, I know we're coming up in time, so I had two final questions for you. The first is, given that you're a physician and entrepreneur, we have many students and early career health professionals in our audience. What is your advice to them about meeting the challenges of COVID and just the national moment we're facing and approaching their career in healthcare? I mean, I think this is a tremendously challenging time to be a learner and to be early in your career. I have so much empathy and gratitude and just real, I mean, awe of the early career health professionals who are out there doing the work for whom this is their first taste of medicine and what a crisis and what a tragedy it's been. And so my advice is to take care of yourselves. I think that we learn early and we build early skills and muscles and rituals that we hope will sustain us through the rest of our career. I think it's different for everyone. For me, some of the, the keys have been assembling a really trusted group of, of confidants and colleagues. Uh, mine are my dearest friends from residency. We still talk frequently, particularly when we're going through a collective moment like we are. So many of us on the front lines of taking care of people struggling with COVID. Um, 
have people around you that you can be fully real and fully open and honest with where you can share vulnerabilities and you can problem solve and who understand your personal thesis for why you are in in healthcare, why you are a physician and can support you through that journey. And then also build self-care rituals and routines that will sustain you even during the hardest times. These things that you will hold sacrosanct if it's your five minutes of meditation or your 30 minute workout every day or your um, early to bed and eight hours of sleep, like build in those routines and hold fast to them because it is so easy for the work to seep into everything. Um, and it's so easy to lose yourself if that happens. So those would be my um, words of advice. I couldn't agree more. And, and it's definitely a topic that's come up consistently on our Razor Line podcast. You know, it's, we're all about improving healthcare capacity, getting more people into the front lines, delivering healthcare but that only works if if they stay, right? If not only are they in systems, new systems like City Block is trying to pioneer that help them rediscover the joys of medicine and, and actually see efficacy because it isn't just you know fee for service. It's it's going into the community to provide the care, but then also self-preservation and, and putting themselves first. I mean, it reminds me of one of our other raised land guests was Ariana Huffington, and she's made a, a whole career at Thrive on how do we improve people, not just healthcare professionals, but people's resilience and help them thrive in the workplace. My last question for you is, uh, is is there anything else you'd like our audience to know about CityBlock, about you, about uh, the future of healthcare? We'd love to give you an open mic. Yeah, I would like people to know that the factors that drive health outcomes for people go far beyond the organ systems, the diseases that we spent so much time learning to name and to measure and to treat. And that if you have any hope of accompanying and supporting and perhaps steering individuals and communities towards better health, you have to fully understand them. And that means sitting for a minute and putting down the stethoscope and putting away the otoscope and stop staring at the x-ray, close the computer screen and actually look the human being in the eyes and understand what matters to them and what's going on for them. That is not a luxury. It's not a nice to have. It's not quote unquote bedside manner. It is actually the work. It's a fundamental input. And you know, I think I described that in the way that we describe our even our data model. It's a fundamental input to making sure that we can understand and therefore engage and therefore intervene and therefore support on the path to better health. Totally. Couldn't agree more. Well, Dr. Ajayi, I really want to thank you not only for taking the time to be with us today, but for the innovation you're pioneering over at CityBlock. I wish you all the success as you try scaling that beyond the four markets you're in nationwide. Thank you. And with that, I'm Shiv Glani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line since we're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.